welcome to On the Record with Furniture Today, a podcast that goes behind the headlines to look at the news and the newsmakers, the people and the personalities that give the furniture industry its unique flavor. I'm your host, Bill McLaughlin, Editor-in-Chief of Furniture Today. Welcome to On the Record. My guest this week is John Conrad, Executive Director of the International Society of Furniture Designers and a fellow podcaster. John, you do Design Between the Lines. Tell folks about your podcast on our podcast. Well, there you go. We're podcasting together. Podcasting brothers. There we go. Uh, We do a, a, basically the podcast is designed to kind of show the listener what it's like in the world of, of today's product designer, whether it be uh, fabric or, or home furnishings in some related form. And it's, uh, it's been fun to do. We're in our, we're starting our third season this coming January. We, right now we're at a, a clip of mightily fast paced one a month, but, uh, it's fun and we enjoy doing it. Um, the last one we just recorded for January will be with David Santiago and David was at a design house in High Point coordinated with High Point Market and with a local charity. And uh, he's a, he's something. He sings soprano and he sings, well, not soprano, excuse me, men, that would be tenor. tenor. Bass. Thank you very much. Tenor, but uh, beautiful voice, my gosh. And so an uh, incredible guy from, uh, started his own business in uh, New Jersey in fabrics. Go figure. Go. go figure. So you... Um, we don't usually use this forum to make announcements of news events, but uh, you've been actively involved in the Pinnacles, and you are about to start a new competition, a maker's competition? Yes. We, you know, we've always had something we wanted to have go on as an organization at April Market. Uh, otherwise, it's just kind of, for us, no, uh, no opportunity for networking for designers. So this year, we decided to... Uh, to, it took two years to get to this point. Uh, initiate an, a maker competition that's juried, uh, similar to how uh, the Pinnacles are juried. Uh, that is uh, student level as well as professional makers, and we have quite a crowd of them in this state we're sitting in right now, North Carolina, uh, in the Raleigh Cary area, and over in Hickory Conover. And I know you you know this because you've seen those people at at that terrific show you have in the Hickory area, which I guess next July will be the Furniture next Furniture Manufacturing Expo, yeah. found our new home in Hickory. Yeah, and it's uh, they love going to that show, by the way, and it's, it's great for them, but it also uh, gives them networking opportunities. So having talked to these gentlemen and ladies, we found that there's a great opportunity to uh, expose their product and what they do as an artist to a, a whole different market. People that really have never seen this kind of work, uh, and I know you saw, saw an example at most recent Pinnacle Awards uh, of a our winner. That was a gorgeous cabinet that he did in multiple woods. Takes a lot of work, a lot of ingenuity, and really a lot of talent and uh, design ability to be able to relate what's coming out of your head into wood. What are the criteria? How do you define a maker? Well, I you know let's get down to one piece, one person. Uh, it really is is a a person that's going to be hands on, making that cabinet, table, what have you, themselves in their shop, 
or in many cases, they now are, there's this whole organization leasing time in CNC routers and larger equipment that, you know, young people and smaller shops can't afford. So they'll be able to lease time or rent time in a local area and, and make their product with a little bit better quality level uh, pro, uh, machinery. So that's that's what it is. It's really one person, one product. Uh, you know, the average maker is going to make 20, 30, 40 items a, a month, maybe more, maybe less, depending on what they're making. Uh, there's a young man we know of up in the Bay Area of California who makes beautiful chairs, bent wood chairs. Uh, he makes quite a few now. Used to when he was starting, he was like six a month. So there is some meaning to the definition of uh, that we, we starving artist. Uh, but he got, his, uh, he got his act together a little bit and was able to produce more as he went along. Some, Bill, some makers have, after a while, sold their products on, uh, that they've been offering online to larger manufacturers. Uh, more recently, I, I can't tell you who specifically, but I will tell you that a lot of manufacturers are looking out for this type of product online. They're researching online. We'd love to have them see this uh, next April this display of 22 to 25 finalists uh, that will be then judged once they get to High Point, uh, actual products. And there'll be a meet the designer evening and uh, we're, we're gonna collaborate a bit with, uh, with, uh, with it and with uh, IFDA and also with an organization that's been around a long, long time that many people don't know of in our industry uh, called uh, the Furniture Society, and that's made up entirely of just makers and curators, people that curate large museums, smaller museums. I had no idea that that was part of their membership, but uh, it's, a, it's a big deal for them because they do a lot of shows. Someone will produce eight or ten exotic items, and they'll have a showing, just like a museum would, of this kind of product. Now, is there a, a potential, theoretically, for, let's say, a, a larger manufacturer to come perhaps see a design and work with that designer to mass produce it and to do it in volume? Yes. Yes. And, and more recently, I'm not going to say with my generation and older, where we were still using onion skin and pencils. Now, when you're, you know, you're, you're using a mouse, a keyboard, lovely uh, screen, you're in CAD. So that's it's easily transferable into computer-aided machine language and then driving big pieces of machinery like CNC routers and so forth to make full production runs. Uh, yes, that's starting to happen now, and maybe it's a good timing for this show. How many different categories? Well, really as many. We're going to try to limit it to the basic ones we're using for, for the pinnacles these days. So you're talking bedroom, dining room, occasional uh, occasional cabinetry, uh, wall art. Uh, when I say wall art, I mean mirrors, framing, that sort of thing. Um, of course, seating by itself, chairs, uh, and some accent furniture, just general accent, throw uh, scatter tables, that sort of thing. Uh, so what do I say? Probably 10, 12 categories, and then two levels, student and professional. How did you find the initial group of makers is there a maker's network, or is this through the Furniture Society? Well, I, I was uh, rummaging around uh, over at the Mill Collective, actually, during uh, a couple of markets ago when they were at, uh, 
I think it was Plant 7, and they've recently moved to the Red Egg. And uh, I met a couple of these makers. And then I found out, well, there's a whole enclave of these makers uh, who went to school at NC State, and they're living around Raleigh and the Cary area. And then they connected with another group that's up in uh, uh, Rocky Mountain, North Carolina, just northeast of there. And then they, in turn, knew some people or relatives that were, were in the Hickory Conover area. And all of a sudden, you know, you've got a whole statewide organization that really came out of nothing. They just communicate with one another, share ideas, share commiserate. Sometimes they, they're, you know, you're, what, what you give, you relate your wins and you relate your losses sometimes. But, uh, yeah, and they came out of nowhere. They just built their own little organization. Come to find out through other people like what we were talking about earlier, uh, a larger organization like uh, the Furniture Society, these people are all over the place. Uh, not just in our state, of course. They're in every state in the country, in Canada, uh, and, and several in uh, the Mexican Peninsula, down, down Baja. So what we're doing now with this is trying to, obviously, we're recognizing they exist all over the country, and we're trying to pull in their, uh, by uploading on our website, uh, their entries, and then judge, prejudge down to about 25 that we can fit into the space we've got, which, thank goodness for Bill Marisech and IMC, they've given us space on the top floor of, uh, of uh, Market Square, where all of the just outside of where all the seminars are done, because well that'll allow us to have you know a meet the designer event on that stage, uh, and that should you know, should work pretty well. So, in answer to your question, and boy was I all over the place on that. It's it's uh, there are smaller groups and then there's larger groups. Uh, the younger people tend to be in smaller groups. I don't know why, but they don't have an affinity to be a part of a larger organization. They think it moves too slowly. And uh, maybe that'll change, but right now it hasn't. So you've been involved now with the Pinnacles for how long? Too long. Uh, let's see. Um, well, I was president of ISFD, then ASFD, the American Society of Furniture Designers, back in uh, 2011, 2012. And then 2013, I, I uh, retired and... Uh, <laughs> Dudley Moore and Steve Hodges dragged me back in, kicking and screaming, going, you need to run this organization. Our, our then uh, uh, ED was retiring, uh, and Christine Evans was her name. It's the Godfather Syndrome. Every time you think you're out, they pull, pull you, you back, back in. in. Yes. It's uh, <laughs> our bad imitation for the day, folks. Hope you enjoyed that. <laughs> oh, so we um, basically, we were, we needed some, we need to energize certain areas of our organization. We needed to get better at uh, data control. We needed to come back to the 21st century in terms of accounting and a few other things. And we need to recognize we could collaborate with other organizations that had similar interests. So we weren't all in little separate silos, not talking to each other. We've all seen results of bad results from that happening. Um, so probably, let's see, that would be Ten, nine, nine coming up on 10 years uh, involved with the Pinnacle Awards and I've seen it transition from ASFD to ISFD we've had a rebranding an update in our branding I've seen it go international I think you and I talked at market 
uh, on one of the morning shows on that. Uh, we're, we're looking to maybe expand it not only over towards the Asian countries, but maybe towards Europe in the next couple of years. Um, now, it's the second or third year that Pinnacles have been in China. We've done two years? Or two years, is- and then um, this coming year, we may take a rest from the, the professional because we want to build a student Pinnacle Award and a, an understructure of that award process by developing our relationships with a number of universities all over Asia. We're in the middle of doing that right now, and we hope to be able to add to that, um, uh, add to the number of universities that are connected with us in nine different countries, uh, probably over the between now and uh, March, hopefully, because we'll probably do the same thing we did with with the professional award level, where we launch it at Guangzhou and we have the award ceremony in Shanghai, uh, kind of connected with the CIFF. Uh, organization. Uh, we have had some other interest from other parties as well, and uh, that's that's helped us a lot, actually. Could we see a European pinnacle? Yeah, it's possible. It's, it's going to be... Europe is so much better at recognizing design and designers than America is, yeah, North America is. We just, we'd rather hide them somewhere and deal with their results than to, you know, pat the designer on the back for what they do and make them, bring them out in the open. Uh, we're an organization that absolutely believes all designers should be recognized for what they do. And you should, we should bring them out into the sunlight and show them off to everyone because we have a lot of talent in this country. Well, I've been to European shows in this and in other industries where the designer is celebrated almost as a celebrity. Mm-hmm. And so... Who designs a particular collection is a, a status symbol, mm-hmm. and it's treated that way. Um, we we don't necessarily do that at this point here. We don't. I'm going to tell you, Bill. Just in the last couple of weeks, a little piece of news. Um, we've been approached by, and I've been hoping that this would happen for a couple of years now. But we've been approached by several retail organizations, as well as manufacturers who want to expand the use of our, the brand, the Pinnacle Awards, the brand ISFD, the recognition that that award brings with it to good design and great design. And they want to get that out to their consumers to the point where they'll even put the identity out on store level floor displays. They'll, uh, they'll educate the floor salespeople as to what it's all about. Uh, we put together already dossiers on where the pinnacles have come from, what they're about for the last 24 years, and uh, handed it to several of these organizations. And you'll see that out on floors coming through through this late late winter and into the spring of next year uh, all over the country. And I'm really happy to say that that's, that's now starting to happen because that builds value. Uh, that really doesn't have to be invested in on the part of the retailer or the the manufacturer because we've already built the value for them over 24 years. So now they're just really exposing that to the consumer who already understands it because they're, they're we're getting feedback from social media platforms and bloggers, design bloggers primarily, who have recognized or been to our awards program in the last couple of years. There's a value to this recognition. 
You you have such passion for design. Is this something that you've had your whole career? Uh, is this something that you came to because of your involvement with then ASFD? Where does your passion for design come from? First, not not having the designer be recognized. I mean, I, I have a passion for them getting the recognition they deserve. Uh, I have a I guess one of the things I wanted to do when I retired from you know, being a VP of merchandising, etc was I wanted to give back. And I felt like I could give back by, by uh, first of all, building a mentoring organization. For those who don't know, you were VP merchandising at? Powell, okay. uh, EVP of merchandising at Powell. And uh, before that, I was with uh, uh, actually Stanley for a time and uh, Lane for a number of years. And, uh, and then somehow I got sidetracked into the commercial Resumercial these days, but uh, hospitality and uh, office seating area. Uh, so I've kind of been in a lot of, played in a lot of green fields, we'll say. Uh, the, I guess, so my, my, what I'm, my passion is coming from, I, I, I want to see young people do well. I want to see them come to our industry. And I want to, I want to give a favorable light from our industry to them because you know half of them and i know you've talked to a number of students at various uh, uh competitions i know you were at uh, appalachian state not too long ago some of them have this impression that everybody's out there in uh, jean overalls covered completely with sawdust and grease and sweating like crazy and it's not the way it is these days with with computer-aided qu equipment uh you you literally can eat out the floor in most of these factories uh, and it's 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 a much better workplace than they could possibly imagine it would be. So I'm, we're trying to bring them here. We don't, you know, I would rather quite a few of them instead of inventing the next uh, handheld device or designing that case for it, come and design a case for someone's home that makes them happy. I mean, that, to me, that's that's where I want to see. That's that's where my uh, my passion for this is, is coming from where I think if we don't, more people don't have that, we're going to lose that and age out of, of great design uh, coming with these young people to this industry. When you were in your initial career, Powell Lane, did you do a lot of work with designers? Yeah, some good, some bad. Uh, I won't name names. We, we had a couple of designers, uh, who would, uh, we would get uh, paper bar napkins uh, in a box. That would be the next collection. And then we would have eight CAD guys and ladies working for weeks trying to take those napkins and create large full-scale CADs of a bedroom, dining room, and occasional collection. Uh, I won't name names, and I won't say what the names were of those people that their nicknames were in our CAD room, but they weren't they weren't pleasant. Let's leave it at that. The other part of it was kind of fun. Uh, I was up in New York one time as a we we had a lovingly named position at Lane called uh, the Gopher. So I worked with a wonderful gentleman, uh, uh, Glenn Thomas, and Glenn was then head of sales for for. Uh, Lane and uh, above him, vice president of the company was Stuart Moore. President at that time was BB Lane, and so I'm up in New York 
and uh, I'm with one of our merchandise managers, and we're at, uh, I think we're at the China Grill, and we're, uh, the designer we were with uh, gets, he gets inspiration, right? And they're talking, and they're having more drinks, and there's more talk, and there's more, and he pulls out a, a, a marks a lot, or actually a, yeah, I think it was a Sharpie, and he starts drawing on the cloth tablecloth. Not paper, it's not glass, it's a cloth tablecloth. And he is drawing away, and we're moving plates, he's drawing more, the collection keeps building, and uh, and the evening comes to an end, and the gopher, that would be me, uh, our merchandise manager looks at me and goes, okay, uh, buy this tablecloth and meet me at the cab. So that was my job for the evening. I had a little argument with the uh, maitre d' because uh, in his, and I'm not sure whether this was a fake French accent or not, and I'm going to do a lousy job of it, but he comes and says, you, know, you must buy the whole the whole collection. We have six individual napkins and the tablecloth. You must buy them. And uh, I'm going, great. So I ended up with six, table, six, six napkins and a tablecloth. Yeah, kind of marshalling them into the cab with the two gentlemen, and away we went. All right, I have to ask, did that collection actually end up being some a, a real collection? Yeah, it was called Legendary. And it was, uh, it was actually, uh, the idea from it came from actually Hopi Indian art and, and dwellings that were in the Hopi uh, community out in, uh, out in Arizona and New Mexico. And uh, yeah, yeah, it was... Uh, Different world. It was a different world. Uh, Leo Geronic, by the way, was that designer. Ah, okay. His name you'll mention. <laughs> yeah. Well, Leo's a great. He was a great, a great gentleman. Uh, uh, and uh, rest in peace. May you rest in peace. But uh, very unique and very energized. Learned a lot. Who were the people that influenced your you and your career early on? Mm. The people that you would look back and and think of as your mentors. One was the guy I mentioned earlier, Glenn Thomas, and uh, he was a great tutor. He also gave me uh, my first copy of How to Run Friends and Influence People. It just showed up one day on my doorstep and uh, with a little note from him. Uh, and unbeknownst to me over the years, here and there, Glenn kind of nudged me along uh, through friends of his and others, and uh, I'll forever be grateful for that. Uh, and then seriously, uh, Leo Geronic. I mean, I had I had a good and bad times with Leo, but he he gave me a passion for design that uh, I I never let go of. Um, and then other other folks, uh, another guy I respect highly, uh, Rick Powell uh, of Powell uh, and his dad were uh, were wonderful people and uh, and good to me, and uh, uh, they were they were excellent. I. I there's just a lot of great people out there, um, and that was. Uh, oh, by the way, another story about the. Uh, I hate to. I keep going on this, but the legendary thing got me. Yeah, I was driving a Pinto, Ford Pinto, and I had to drive from Jessup, Virginia, with 96 seat cushions for uh, dining chairs, uh, down to Alderman Studios for the photography that night before the market opened, and I could only make turn left. Because my right arm was holding up all the, all the cushions. Because you know you turn right suddenly, you're you're gonna the cushions are gonna cave in on you. So that was my uh, 
Another little experience. I, I find it amazing. I, I actually had a Ford Pinto. I'm amazed you could fit 96 <laughs> cushions in a Ford Pinto, to be honest with you. Oh, my gosh. It's, uh, that in and of itself is, is quite an accomplishment. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to, part of your job now is kind of advocating and promoting the pinnacles. Mm-hmm. Everybody talks about Everybody thinks that sales jobs are sales, and if you're not in sales, there's no salesmanship. But one of the things that I have found over the course of my career is that we all, to some degree or another, in whatever our career path is, have to sell in some way. For for an editor, it's convincing someone to share information with you, perhaps, that they may not want to. Or in, in your case, it's advocating for the pinnacles and convincing people to participate. Do you have some tips, strategies, some philosophies of... And you, you referenced Dale Carnegie, for example. Mm. Are there some things there that, that you try to bring to bear in your work day? Um, First and foremost, Bill, see as much as you can from the other person's point of view, whoever your audience is. I, um, if ever I get involved in anything, if it's an outside project not related to what I, what I do, uh, I ask who the audience is going to be. If there's a message we're going to convey in a sales format, and everything is sales. You're selling ideas. Every day we're selling something. Uh, you've got to look at it from their point of view to know how to adjust the message to the audience to make them, if you're going to ask them to do something, if you're going to motivate them to action, you better you better understand who they are and what motivates them before you tailor your message and ask for action. So, I mean, the, that's probably the one thing I would say to a lot of people, no matter what they are in a sales capacity, they, they absolutely need to understand their audience. So you're a podcaster. You have to get guests. I'm going to ask you, if you could interview, if you could do a podcast with anyone, alive or dead, any time in history, is there someone that you would like to have sit across the table from you and talk about whatever it is? Hmm. I don't know what, what you're going to say when I say this answer. My dad. It's the first guy I would think of because he had a interesting experience in World War II, and I, but he never told us about it until way late in, later in life, and I never got to really ask him more questions about how that affected him and what he, what is, uh, so if I, that'd be the first guy I'd want to get. Now, that's, that's from a personal side, sure. but uh, from a, from a, business side that's really interesting I um, boy that's hard to, I mean I there's a lot of people I'd like well to talk I mean about. for example if I was thinking furniture I would think JD bassett I would love to find some of the original founders of the furniture industry yeah EH Lane Edward mm-hmm. Lane senior the, the guy who was making cedar chests in a 50-foot shed with a tin, tin siding that didn't go all the way to the ground that was all dirt floor. You know, how many do we need to make this week? And they get on a train and go ride somewhere and sell them. Yeah, I'd like to, I'd like to kind of know what motivated those guys to get started and, uh, and where they felt like it was going to go. And then how did they feel when it got to where it did get? Was that really what they had in mind or was it so much more? That would be, yeah, that would be interesting to, to see that, to Maybe go back and just see where the initial uh, the initial 
startups of these small, larger retail organizations of today got their little tiny start, and somebody had a had a just a beautiful idea in their head, but they had to get it from there through a lot of collaborations and selling to reality. I'd love to anybody that that was in this industry that has that sort of a pathway they took, and they're all different. I'd love to find out where that how their path went. You know, that sort of thing. That's that's where I think I find the most fun in podcasting and doing what you do is is to uh, is to ask that question and find out what did get them from point A to point B. I'm always curious when I talk to people, where did the genesis of an idea comes from? And very often I will ask people, you know, what inspires you? And you get all different kinds of things, right? Oh, I observe life all around me. But there's, there is sometimes, I, I feel like in times where I've had a creative moment, those one or two times, um, where there's, there's just a nugget of an idea where you see something and then that's juxtaposed with something else. And those two things coalesce and there's a little spark that goes off and there's an idea. And I often wonder for people, where does the germ of an idea where did the germ of the idea come from for a recliner? Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Yeah, where did that, you know, at one point did somebody say, you know, I tilt back in my chair all the time while I'm watching TV. Why can't I get something that does it for me? And uh, and I don't have to worry about falling over backwards and making uh, yeah. a fool of myself. Yeah. Right? When I was uh, when I was at Lane, we were amazed at, at what was happening with... Uh, the then Action Recliner Company, which became part of the Lane, and then really Lane became part of it. It grew beyond uh, how many different versions, how easy it was to, with a little lever device, that how it all came to pass. That And then now look what we're doing with motion. Everything is getting to where it's, uh, it's a, yeah, one idea leads to the next, I guess. If we can do this, why can't we do that? Now, People that do that, that ask that question, why can't we do that? That's that's the person. That's that little moment of uh, I'll call it insanity. Get that little. It takes you right over the edge to aha. Your aha moment. That yeah, that could. Why can't we? Well, no one said we couldn't. Why don't we do it? And a lot of people that recliners would be one. Motion furniture today. Uh, where'd the bunk bed come from? Who stacked beds? And when did they figure out that was a good idea? You know, but they're doing it. They've done it for years and years and years. So uh, I don't know. That's a that's the moment. That's what we're looking for. We could be around and see what that's like in anybody's head. That's uh, that would be a that would be a very uh, that would be life changing to figure out how that worked. You know, this actually just gave me an idea for a podcast. I think I'm going to get a handful of designers and sit them around this table in our little cave of a a podcasting studio and, and ask them about the germs of their ideas. Great idea. And I think you're going to find interesting pathways that are not all the same at all. Well, thanks very much for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Bill. I appreciate it. Glad, glad to be here for you. My guest this week was John Conrad, executive director of ISFD and the host of Design Between the Lines.